tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild, precious life? The question is from the poem Summer Day by Mary Oliver. And it's a question many of us suppress because it's kind of overwhelming. There's an inscription discovered under a roadbed in a Roman city which says, to hunt, to bathe, to gamble, to laugh, that is to live. But as full of bravado as that is, uh, we know that it falls short of the grandeur and the earnestness of living, as Abraham Heschel puts it. Given that you and I are infused with the image of God, how do we live our routine little lives in a way that somehow does justice to the glory? Well, our gospel lesson answers that question for us today. So in this morning's lesson, a man, a scribe, has been listening to Jesus argue with several different groups. And up until this moment, none of the questioners have really cared that much about the actual answer for personal reasons. They only ask the questions to get Jesus into trouble. The first antagonist asked a question about paying taxes to Caesar, which was supposed to put Jesus in a bind in his response, either with Roman people who were taxing them or devout Jews who didn't want to be taxed by the Romans. And then there was another group of hecklers who asked this completely ridiculous question about a, man, a woman who's been married, she's been widowed seven times. And the question was, so whose husband is she going to be in heaven? And really, they weren't personally interested. They just wanted to show up the fact that belief in the resurrection was really rather silly. Well, Jesus answers these questions well and according to the scriptures, and really rather remarkably, charitably, given the circumstances. He even answers them in such a way that the obstinate hecklers are basically given an opportunity right then and there to get to know the living God and his plans. And that's worth remembering in and of itself, that even antagonistic questions, questions that are motivated out of the wrong thing are an opening. And Jesus still answers them. So bring your questions, even the ones that you are embarrassed about, to Jesus. And welcome the questions of others, because there is an opening there to know the Lord. Well, back to our story. So on the fringe is a man who's been listening. And he's so impressed by Jesus' answers that he, has, he asks a serious question of his own. What commandment is first? And Jesus turns to him and replies with what is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, it's not actually a command, is it? It's a word of introduction to a personal, living being. And that is so important because it's foundational to knowing what we are supposed to do in knowing who made us. The one with whom we live in relationship 
whether we acknowledge it or not. So the first answer to this question of how we are to live is it's about a relationship. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, and Shema, the Hebrew word, is just the imperative form of the Hebrew verb to listen. But in Hebrew, that word group has a few more subtle meanings. Uh, it means listen, attend, even obey. It's not just auditory perception. It has obedience linked into the very act of listening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, what does that really mean? On the one hand, Israel had only one God. But more than that, the oneness of God demands our complete commitment of heart, of intelligence, of mind, of effort, of energy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If God were an idea, a theory, the study of theology would be a totally adequate way to understand him. But God is alive. And so to get to know him, we actually have to enter in to loving him, to being with him, to worshiping him. Now, I've known people, and probably you have too, who are incredibly knowledgeable about the divine, but they don't actually have a sense of relationship with God. They don't enjoy praising him. They don't look to see how God is going to show up in their actual daily life and marvel at it when he does. I have to share with you that um, this past week, I was going to go to a funeral in Boston uh, for my brother-in-law. And uh, my relationship with my sister-in-law had been rather strained these last 33 years. I had lost credibility, really, in her eyes, which is really a shame when you're a priest. And uh, I asked my clergy brethren and sisterin if they would pray for me that there'd be an opportunity in this time for God to do something to reconcile us. So I flew into Boston, got there around three, and nobody knew I was there. Took a walk down the Charles River. Uh, it was uh, the head of the Charles weekend, actually. And quite a busy, busy way it was. And after about two miles, I decided, for no particular reason, to sort of turn into Memorial Drive and walk up the other side. And in about two minutes, I was in front of this brick apartment building. Nobody I know lives in that brick apartment building. And I saw this tall woman in the doorway coming out. It was my sister-in-law. Who does that? How does God do that? I mean, if you're a mathematician, please tell me, what are, what are the statistics supporting that event? But here was the thing. Uh, we looked at each other, and she was surprised. She didn't even recognize me. At first, she saw me, and she said, I was surprised to see you. But of course, she knew why I was there. 
for her. And all of, there was nothing else around us. We should have shed all of our everything else-ness. It's just us two standing there. And there was just this blessed freedom as we stood face to face from all that history. It actually reminded me uh, of a poem written by Malcolm Geit. You can find it in the gallery uh, if, you, if you go and look today or another time. But I'm just going to read it. It's called Ordinary Saints. As this is the final piece of it. Remember how we turned to look at them and they looked back. That full-eyed love unselved us. And we turned around, unready for the wrench and reach of grace. Indeed, grace. Well, God does show up in our lives in very personal ways. And to love him means expecting that kind of personal relationship. Just think about what a contrast that knowledge of the divine is to the way Jesus talks to God. I mean, he uses this affectionate, familiar term. He calls him dad. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. That's what Jesus says to his heavenly father when the disciples come back after all the wonderful healings that have happened. It just, Jesus can't help but just share how excited he is with his father. Or he teaches us our father in heaven. And the word is really dad. Our dad in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Or John 11. Father, I thank thee that you have heard me. That's what he says before he's going to heal Lazarus. He thanks his father. He knows he's already hearing him. Or Mark 13, Abba, Father, Abba, Pater, Dad, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So the first answer to how we shall live this one wild life is to love the Lord, our dear Heavenly Father, with all our heart and mind and soul. But it doesn't end there. Jesus has to go on to a second command. It's sort of like that if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, you have to give it more stuff. Uh, if you love God with all your heart, it turns out he's going to ask you to love your neighbor. Because your neighbor was created in the image of God as well, and he loves your neighbor just as much as he loves you. So having given the most important command, Jesus gives another one. Love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus. So Jesus has given these two answers completely in consistency with the Jewish scriptures. And he concludes by saying that there is no other command greater than these. The two ways that you are most importantly going to live your one wild, precious life is in relationship with God and neighbor. But it's interesting what happens next. <clears throat> that man who's been listening to Jesus, approving of him, he says, this, what Jesus has just said, is much more important 
than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, than all the ritual work of the temple. Well, what's the significance of that? Why does he, why does he say that? <clears throat> well, the temple was an institution that's role was to make up for the fact that Israel had not been able to keep that first commandment very well, or, by the way, that second one, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so this ritual sacrifice, this practice of making atonement for the ways in which Israel had fallen short, was happening all the time in the temple. But Jesus is saying, you know what? There's come along something that is going to replace that. Because, you know, I know lambs are precious and it's sad that they're dying when this ritual sack, but we know it's not enough. I mean, a lamb can't really make up for the sins of Israel or even my personal sins or yours. But Jesus says, I am stepping in to what the temple couldn't do. I am going to be that reconciling path between you and your heavenly father so you can call dad God too. I am going to be the one who lays down my life so that you can have life, so that you can have eternal life with my heavenly father who loves you and made you in the image of himself and your neighbor too. So, how is it that we are going to live this one wild and precious life in love of God and in love of our neighbor? Amen.